This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we are looking this morning at verses 6 through 9. So we've begun a series in this epistle of Peter, looking this morning at chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Hear the word of God. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray together. Father, we give thanks to you for the Holy Scriptures and pray this morning as we study these words that your light would shine upon them, that in your light we would see light. Sanctify us by the truth, O God. Your word is truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen, Peter begins his letter by reminding us of who we are, uh, reminding us of our identity in Christ Jesus, redeemed by a triune work, chosen by the foreknowledge of the Father, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter breaks into that doxology that uh, really, beginning in verse 3, continues uh, on through verse 9. And he simply reflects in each verse on reasons for praising God. And as we saw last time, one of those reasons that he gives for praising God is, as his people, the inheritance that is ours, that awaits us. An inheritance, as he says in verse 4, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that on the one hand is itself kept for us by the Father. On the other hand, we too are kept for it. So that if you are a child of God in Christ Jesus, that inheritance is for you inevitable. It is your inheritance along with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, as Paul says, heirs of God and co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ Jesus. And that's a magnificent thing, and, and it fits right in with, with Peter's theme in this epistle, which is hope. Specifically, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus both for this life and 
uh, for the life that is to come. But what about now? It seems like it will be a very long time before we come into our inheritance. What about in the meantime? What are we to make of uh, this life that we are in that uh, so often feels very different from being heirs to a fortune? Where we struggle, where things don't seem to go right, uh, where sometimes it seems like it's just the opposite, uh, that we're lacking an inheritance figuratively, but maybe even literally. Uh, we can feel like we really don't have much, or what we do have is insecure in this world. Well, Peter picks up with that thing. It's almost as if he thought that. You know, here I am describing this inheritance that we have, and it's real, and it's coming. But what about in the meantime? And so that's why he picks up in verse 6 as he does. How do we deal with this life, and especially the afflictions, the trials that we encounter in this life? What about in the meantime? before we come into that inheritance. Well, that's what Peter wants to address now. And, and along with the theme of his letter, we have hope because of our coming inheritance. He reminds us that we can ha- have hope even in the trials of this life, even in the worst afflictions. How so? Well, he tells us four truths here that we need to understand and that we need to keep in mind when we suffer in this world in, in different ways. And the first is fairly obvious. And that is that trials are inevitable. Suffering in this world is inevitable. Peter picks up in verse 6 by saying, In this you rejoice. Yes, we rejoice because of our future prospects, our inheritance. Though now, for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, Peter is a realist. Peter is not prosperity preacher, where if you just come to Jesus, he's going to bless you and life is going to be so much better. No, no. Peter says you rejoice in this, even though now you have been suffering. It's not you might, it's not you will, but you are now suffering in various trials. And this really is is one of those paradoxes we find in the Christian life, that there is both joy and heartache. In fact, there is joy in the heartache. Because these trials in life are inevitable. But there are several things here that Peter says about these trials, these inevitable trials in, uh, in verse 6 that we need to remember. They're temporary. Notice what he says. Though now, for a little while. Now there's a couple of ways we could look at that, at their being temporary. One, of course, is that they are temporary because they are restricted to this life. And I want to set that aside because he really takes that up later. But they are temporary in that during this life, these trials come, but they also pass. Most of them. There are afflictions, maybe physical ailments or difficulties that you will endure for as long as you are on this earth. But most of the things that come up, most of the difficulties, the problems that we face, do rise but then fade. Either we adjust or we deal with them or we address them or we get used to them or the Lord removes them, whatever it might be. They are inevitable, yes, but they are temporary both for this life and certainly as they are restricted to this life. 
They're also necessary, he says. Now, that's a peculiar thing. Look at verse 6. Though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are they necessary? Why does it have to be this way? Well, a couple of answers we could give to that, that the scriptures, I think, gives to that. One is they are necessary because they are, they are part and parcel of living in a, in a fallen world, in a world that has been warped by sin, uh, and in a world that has been placed under God's curse, that he himself placed a curse on it, where things are not right. Things don't work as they should. This is not the same world that God created, or at least we should say it's not in the same condition. Sin has affected things drastically so that things happen in this world, so that things happen within our bodies, so that things happen in other people and what they do to us or what we might do to them, that it is necessary that we are going to suffer in this world simply because of the nature of this world in which we live. But as God's children, trials are necessary for another reason. And that has to do with God's chastening, with God's discipline. And we think discipline in the negative sense, and that's certainly there. God may bring trials into your life to force you to face and address sin, uh, a lack of Christ-likeness in your life. Nothing else, trials have a way of humbling us and cultivating humility in us, which in turn cultivates a compassion for other people. So it may be that uh, God is dealing with those things in your life. Remember what uh, Hebrews says, no discipline uh, is pleasant at the time, but it's painful, and it is. But it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. But discipline is also uh, a, 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 has a broader sense, we might say a more positive sense, of, of teaching. The, the, the disciples were learners. To be under discipline is to be under teaching, under training. And you see that. We read earlier from uh, the book of Job. God brought these afflictions into Job's life for, knowing the first couple of chapters, where the, the veil is pulled back, allows Satan to test Job in this way, not because of sin in Job's life, but precisely because there's not sin there. Now, Job wasn't perfect, wasn't sinless, but what happened to him, unlike his friend's counsel, wasn't because of something he did, because he was a righteous man. Satan wanted to put that to the test, and God allowed him to do that. And Job was strengthened, he was tempered through those sufferings that he Endured, We could say he was afflicted precisely because he was a righteous and godly man. Why are trials necessary? Well, part of it is that we live in a fallen world, and they're inevitable in that sense. But part of it is because they are necessary for God to take you and shape you and to sand you and, and to sculpt off the rough edges and the sharp corners and to chisel on your life and on your character and on your being until you look a lot more like Jesus. So they are necessary for these reasons. Uh, and James, as the, the New Testament reading earlier, that, that suffering, trials produce steadfastness. They make us tough. They make us capable of persevering 
And so they're necessary for these reasons. But they're also real. They are inevitable. But the Christian view is not to deny them. Well, you know, it's not really suffering because God's working through this. No. Peter recognizes that, su- that trials are trials. Afflictions afflict. Again, verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials. They, they suffered grief. Because of these various trials, it could be sickness from living in a fallen world. It could be just the discouragement of dealing with temptation and sin in their own lives. It could be persecution that comes up in this in this book. Whatever the trial, various kinds of trials, they suffer grief. It's real. They do hurt. And there is joy in them that tempers it, but it doesn't take away the fact that these things do hurt. Our presbytery lost a couple of stalwarts this last month, this in the last few weeks, Bob Sweet and Dwight Linton, uh, within a week. And in their funerals, a verse that came up a couple of times, uh, and often is heard at funerals, is from 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died in the Lord, that we don't grieve as do those who have no hope. And it's true there is hope in the face of death, but there is also grief in the face of death. Trials are real. Peter is not saying we whitewash it, we deny it. We acknowledge that they hurt. Christians suffer, and that is real suffering. But yes, it is tempered here by the fact that they are temporary and they are necessary. And we acknowledge that they are inevitable in this life. We're not surprised. We're not caught off guard. We're prepared for these things. That's the first thing. Trials are inevitable. The second truth that Peter would have us know is that trials do bring benefits. We've mentioned a couple of those, but he specifically names a couple of things here in verse 7. So that purpose, these trials come, you've been grieved by these things, so that, in order that, a couple of things might happen. First, these trials would prove the reality of our faith. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed that falls in rocky ground and it springs up quickly. But when trials and persecutions come, the plant fades because it did not have any root. It did not have any life in itself. It wasn't real. It was an apparent conversion. It was a counterfeit conversion, but it wasn't real. There was no root. There was no life. Well, Peter says that we should... Take comfort in the fact that trials bring out the tested genuineness of your faith. Now, if you have not suffered, your faith in Christ may be real. And faith is faith. It's not sight. It's faith. It's not a leap in the dark either. There are good reasons for faith. But it is faith. And the faith may be real. But when it has been tested, when it has been tried, like gold, like metal refined in the fire, it proves real. It's been tested. It's been certified authentic, just like that gold. And it's far more precious, Peter says, than that gold. It perishes ultimately, though it is tested by fire. Even though it's the real thing, even gold itself will one day perish. But faith is more precious than, than the, even that gold, even the wealth of the world. So that's one thing. One, one consolation in trials is it gives us a tested, a tempered faith. 
But there's another thing. It results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're you're awake at this early gloomy hour of the day, you'll recognize in that verse that it's left ambiguous. Praise and glory and honor for whom? Peter didn't say. We might normally think, well, Christ. After all, who does praise and glory and honor go to? Well, Christ. Well, of course. And I think that's absolutely true. That the tested reality of our faith, when Christ comes back, will bring glory to him because he is our Savior. He is the one who has redeemed us. Worthy is the Lamb, the saints cry out in Revelation, to receive glory and honor and praise. Peter doesn't say that specifically. And I think the reason he doesn't is that we believers share in that praise and glory and honor coming of Christ. You see, our faithfulness in trials, the tested reality, genuineness of our faith, brings glory to Christ, but it also, that glory reflects back on us. Remember what, what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4. You know, I, I have kept the faith. I've run the race. You know, I've finished the course. And there is stored up for me the reward of the crown of righteousness. And even the passage we read earlier in James, in James chapter 1. Uh, James says the same thing in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown which is righteousness, Paul, the crown which is life here, but the crown itself denotes an honor. Now, we'll throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus, because it's all praise and glory to him. And yet we share in that glory. That, too, is a consolation. There is a reward in Christ at his coming for those who have stood the test under trial by fire, whatever form that fire might take. That, too, consoles us, brings these benefits. It proves the reality of our faith. It it brings us the smile of Christ when we've stood for him faithfully. There's another thing that Peter wants us to know about trials here in verse 8. They remind us of what is important. In other words, they direct our focus and our gaze to the right place. You ever had this experience? Some of you women may relate to this, others may not. Your football team is doing well. It's winning games. You're excited. You can't wait to watch. And then finally they lose some game. And you think, well, it's just football. Trials, pain of defeat in that case, the trials have a way of reminding us of, of real priorities, of what is really important, of what really matters. Sometimes we lose sight of that when things are going well in this world. It shouldn't be that way, but it, it can be. You know, Comfort tends to lull us to sleep. Trials refocus our attention on what really matters. And Peter mentions several things here in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. One thing that's important, trials remind us of, is love for Christ. Now, it's interesting Peter puts it that way. Almost as if Peter's amazed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter doesn't say, though we have not seen him. 
Because Peter saw Jesus. Peter heard him teach. Peter had the front row seat, miracles. Had a much closer seat than he wanted to the sufferings and crucifixion of Jesus there at the end. But notice what Peter says, though you have not seen him. He's writing to the second generation, so to speak. Post-apostolic Christians who rely on the testimony of the apostles and and the scriptures. Peter says, though you have not seen him. You love him. You know, Peter pronounced a blessing on such. He said to Thomas, you know, you, you, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe and will believe. He's talking about you and me, as well as these second generation Christians. But love for Christ. You know, the trials come to remind us what we ought to be loving. When God strips away the comfort, the security, the wealth of this world, we say, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to be fixated on, but on Christ himself, on the Lord God. Trust in Christ. Verse 8, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You you trust in him. You've placed your eternal well-being in in the hands of one who you've never seen. Trust in Christ. You know, we, 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 we find that when the things of the world are stripped away, or when things become scary, We learn that we don't trust in a person or a people. We don't trust in what we have. We trust in Christ. The uh, 20th century Baptist and eminently quotable preacher Vance Havner tells a story about an elderly lady who was greatly disturbed by many troubles, troubles both real and, uh, as is often the case, imaginary. And finally, someone in her family tactfully told her, Grandma, we've done all we can do for you. You're going to just have to trust God. And with a look of great distress on her face, she said, has it really come to that? Havner replies, it always comes to that. So we might as well begin with that. Trusting in Christ, trusting in, in God, that our Father is sovereign over all things, isn't the last resort. It should be the first, but sometimes it does take trials to, to drive us to that. And then finally, he mentions in connection with what's important, this third truth, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's an amazing statement. Know that in the trials of this world, we love Christ, we trust in Christ, and in Christ we are filled with joy. But notice, he, he almost puts this joy into an otherworldly Status, joy that is inexpressible, that is unspeakable, that is beyond words, and full of glory. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had that experience? What would that be like? Well, let me give you just an example, and and this is this is striking, and I think an exceptional instance of this. Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife. Um, godly woman. You, you're familiar with Edwards, maybe if only through having read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in your high school English anthology. Uh, Edwards preached the judgment of God and his wrath towards sinners because the Bible teaches it, but Edwards focused far more on the love of God and the joys of heaven than he did the wrath of God and the terrors of hell. But the two do go together, the law and the gospel. Well, Edwards wrote about his wife, and actually at the time wrote without using her name or even that she was a she, that she was female. 
But uh, this, was, this was Sarah Edwards' own testimony of an experience she had, which to me captures what, uh, what, what Peter is describing here. She says, while Mr. Reynolds was praying, these words in Romans 8.34 came into my mind. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, which occasioned great sweetness and delight in my soul. But when I was alone... The words came to my mind with far greater power and sweetness. They appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God and as words which God did pronounce concerning me. I had no more doubt of it than I had of my own being. I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. The everlasting mountains and hills were but shadows to it. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's immutable love seemed as durable and unchangeable as God himself. Melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears. The presence of God was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious of anything else. The peace and happiness which I hereupon felt was altogether inexpressible. I seemed to be lifted above earth and hell, out of the reach of everything here below. The whole world with all its enjoyments and all its troubles seemed to be nothing. My God was my all my only portion. And a week later, she says, I continued in a sweet and lively sense of divine things until I retired to rest. That night, which was Thursday night, January 28th, was the sweetest night I ever had in my life. I never before for so long a time together enjoyed so much of the light and rest and sweetness of heaven in my soul, but without the least agitation of body during the whole time. The great part of the night I lay awake, sometimes asleep and sometimes between sleeping and waking. But all night I continued in a constant, clear, and lively sense of the heavenly sweetness of Christ's excellent and transcendent love, of his nearness to me and of my dearness to him with an inexpressibly sweet calmness of soul and an entire rest in him. There seemed to be a constant flowing and reflowing of heavenly and divine love from Christ's heart to mine, and I appeared to myself to float or swim in these bright, sweet beams of the love of Christ, like the motes, the specks of dust, swimming in the beams of the sun or the streams of his light which come in at the window. My soul remained in a kind of heavenly Elysium, so far paradise, so far as I'm capable of making a, a comparison I think what I felt each minute during the continuance of the whole time was worth more than all the outward comfort and pleasure which I had enjoyed in my whole life put together. It was a pure delight which fed and satisfied the soul. It was pleasure without the least sting or any interruption. It was a sweetness which my soul was lost in. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain of that fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ. And share his love in the heavenly world. Do you want that? I do. I don't know that I've ever experienced that. Maybe experienced something similar to it. But that, I think, is what Peter is describing here. Being filled with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. A sense of heavenly joy here, now, on earth. Now, I think that was remarkable. I don't think we should necessarily seek that, although we should pray that God would fill us with his joy, a joy that is heavenly, a joy that is based on his love for us and not the circumstances of this world. 
But when Peter speaks of a joy inexpressible and full of glory, he is speaking of a joy in our soul that does come from a great sense of Christ's love to us and his trustworthiness as our Savior and his reality as our Lord. Dear friends, trials direct our attention back to what is important. You see, all too often we tend to love the world. We tend to trust in the things of the world. We tend to find our joy in the world. In the trials the Lord sends, pry our hands off those things to lift our gaze up and to direct it into his own eyes and into his own face so that we might experience or begin to experience a joy that, as Sarah Edwards says, so far greater than all the delights and joys and pleasures of this world in a lifetime combined. There's a third thing, or fourth thing, rather, that uh, Peter reminds us of here. And that is that the trials, while inevitable and do bring benefits here in this world and do refocus our gaze and what's important, he reminds us in verse 9 that they will end. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The end, the goal of your faith, which is what? That one day, instead of being cast into hell under the judgment of God for our sins, redeemed in Christ, we would behold the face of Christ. In other words, as as the hymn says, that day when our faith will be made sight. When our relationship to Christ will no longer be that of faith, but of sight, we will see him. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, I have that now. Yes, you do, but not in full. Not as you one day will. Not as it will be on that day. At your death, when you are in the presence of Christ, yes, but especially all the more at Christ's return and the resurrection and the glory is ushered in in all its fullness. And we will be with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth forever. See, that's the outcome of our faith. It's not just to get us through today or this week, although it is that. It is to see us into the presence of Christ, into that place where God wipes away every tear, into that place where we will be like him in holiness, because, as John says, we will see him as he is. Dear friends, Peter recognizes the reality of what his readers, including us, Go through. Peter knew what it was to suffer in this world, to suffer the pains of a fallen world, to suffer persecution for being a follower of Christ and out of step with this world. But he gives us these consolations that these things are inevitable in this world and we might as well be ready for them, not surprised. They do bring benefits, they refocus our gaze on what's really important and to recognize that though trials may last a lifetime, They last only a lifetime. And as Paul said, the afflictions of this world, they can be horrible, are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this world does contain the most terrible of suffering sufferings and afflictions. Um, Father, we recognize that these things are very real and they are very painful. 
Father, how much more do we see the glory of the gospel of Christ in that the grace of the gospel, the joy of the gospel can counterbalance those things in this world and make them but faint memories in the world to come. Father, give us grace to stand, Lord, whatever we might be enduring right now, trials great and small, and whatever we might endure this week or next year or in our lifetimes. Father, we do pray that by your grace we would love Jesus, we would trust Jesus, and we would be filled with the joy of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.